Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, as always, it is uh, the one and only Alan Niven. And, uh, well, first of all, bonjour, Monsieur Alan. But this one's we're going to talk about you a little bit, because you, you were actually involved in part of this history that we're going to talk about today. And I guess you want okay. me to tell you what it is, right? <laughs> You'd better tell me. I was waiting for the bonjour back. But all right. Uh, uh, my guest today is Jim Valance, and we are celebrating 30 years of the Scorpions' Crazy World album, which came out on November 6th, 1990. And of course, Jim was involved with the band at the time, and he even played drums on some of the demos. Uh, and, and of course, that tour, the Crazy World tour, it is Scorpions' And Great White that did uh, most of the tour together. Uh, every so often, Trickster or Mr. Big slotted in there in the third place. But uh, you were there with Herman. And uh, by the way, did, did Jim Valance ever come out to any of these shows? Did you, did you ever remember meeting Jim? No, unfortunately, uh, I didn't get to meet Jim um, at any of those dates, which is a regret of mine um, because I have a very very high regard for Mr. Valance and his composing. Yeah, well, you know, he he's great. He's uh and I think we've talked about this before. He was in the band Prism. Do you remember Prism at all from Canada? Um late seventies, right? Yeah, they were they were one of those bands from, from that era and he was the drummer and they were going out and they were touring and this and that and at some point and I think Jim even says so in the interview, he just like yeah, you know what? Driving in a van with a bunch of guys just wasn't for me. And so he he retreated to uh, Vancouver, uh, eventually hooked up with Brian Adams. They started writing songs, which which is amazing that Brian Adams is a you know, 17, 18-year-old kid, started writing songs for, you know, um, Backman Turner Overdrive and um, I'm trying to think who else, Heart and Kiss and all these bands, and, and you're just like, wow, okay, that's that's interesting. And then, of course, he had his own success. But what can you tell me about Crazy World in terms of the album and the importance? And then as a manager going, you know what? I need my band on that bill because Wind to Change, uh, Tease Me, Please Me, these songs, are they're big, they're happening. I need to be connected to this. I don't recall it being in that state of mind at the time. Um, it was more a fact that, you know, if I remember, I think Doc McGee was managing them at the time. And it was Doc and, Doc and uh, I having a, a conversation and, um, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, let's go and do it together, you know, quick and easy. Um, if you get an invitation to play with the Scorpions, you don't really have to think about it. You just say yes, because you know it's going to be a great, great evening. You know that they're utterly consistent and that they're decent people. They'll treat you right. And uh, off you go and have a good time, which was, you know, part of the point of it. You know, you didn't just tour just to promote a record. You toured because of the delight of the audience. And, you know, that long ago, um, Actually, I, I had a little moment over the weekend um, where, you know, I, if I turn my radio on, every day I hear something that, you know, that I've been associated with or worked on or written or produced or something. And, you know, usually for me, that's a kind of a self-defense of a mental shrug. I don't really want to think about it. But this, uh, this, this one moment, it was late on Friday night. House of Broken Love came on the radio and I actually turned it up and appreciated the song objectively and had a moment of incredible sense of gratitude that after 33 years, this thing is still on the radio. And that is, that, that's an amazing thing to me that, you know, these, these, there are songs and there are bands that are transgenerational. And they still seem to have a vitality and a relevance and still seem to speak, um, you know, and in, in some ways it shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, we walk into a bookstore and we see books that have been lasting for hundreds of years. Um, that is truly amazing. But it's kind of nice to know that, you know, you contributed to something that still connects and still speaks. 
Yeah. And of course, uh, Wind of Change is one of those songs that, that connects and still speaks to folks. But let me ask you about this real quick. The The band was a hard rocking band. And you look back in the early 80s and you've got Rock You Like a Hurricane and Big City Nights. And they had all these big songs. And yet in America, they, I mean, they were doing well, but they, for some reason, not not at that level of playing stadiums or not at that level of um you know, like a Metallica would eventually become, but then they've got these two ballads and moving forward after the eighties or sometimes when I see articles now referring to the Scorpions there, they seem to be referred to as a ballad band, which is completely and utterly ridiculous. And yet that the power of wind of change and send me an angel has sort of rebranded them. Well, Talk to me a little bit about those songs and, and what they meant to the band and, and did it, is it possible to have a song that's just too big and it just sort of changes everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I've lived through a, you know, a handful of songs that you can describe as too big, that they become monolithic and then almost like an albatross around your neck. And, you know, God, God forbid that one should be, uh, um, unappreciative of that level of connection, but in pragmatic terms, they can sometimes be hard to deal with. But it's interesting you mentioned Wind and Change because Wind and Change to me is a very bittersweet song for me when I hear it because I got suckered too. When the war came down, I thought things were going to get better on this planet. But guess what? You know, I should have remembered the who and should have remembered don't get fooled again, um, you know, because all that promise of change and improvement did not materialize. Um, and I think part of that was, you know, the great American society gloating over the demise of communism in Russia. But uh, for me, it's bittersweet because I bought into that just like the Scorpions did. I went, yes, there is a winter change. Things are going to get better. And then we look around today and we have people like Putin and you know, whoever else. And, uh, and I just sit there and go, I don't know if there's any possibility of improvement of the, the human consciousness. It, there, there are those moments when you have that little dark shadow cross across your soul and say, yeah, maybe we are what we are and God help us all. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I look back growing up through the 70s and 80s and we always talked about Gulf War this and Grenada that and Falkland Islands and and, and and the Cold War and, and the Iron Curtain. And it always seemed like, you know, it was the end of the world was going to come. And then we had, you know, a perestroika and then we had the, the Berlin Wall. And and it seemed as though we were getting somewhere. And now I look, I, I'm just looking around, uh, you know, just on my Twitter feed and I'm seeing this person got shot and this person got this and that this invasion. And, and, and you just go, wow. Maybe we haven't, maybe we, there's nothing. It's just, we're just back. Like you said, we're, we're just going to be in this permanent area anyway. Uh, now, let me get back to music real quick. The band. But, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's another reason why I think uh, we had allowed ourselves to be embraced by rock and roll and music in general, because I think, you know, at the heart of it uh, is an expression of humanity and connection. And, um, you know, rock and roll is, I think, a, a, a playful and optimistic at heart. And um, it saddens me that there's not much rock and roll being generated anymore. And that worries me, too. Yeah, it really does. Uh, but I will mention this. The Scorpions put out a Wind of Change box set. So uh, I bought this box set, and it's absolutely fantastic. The only place I've seen it is on the uh, Scorpions official web store. Now, it might be available somewhere else. I don't know. I didn't look anywhere else. But you get this book, this hardcover book that's, um, well, it's really thick. I didn't count the pages, but it's got at least, it's got to be at least 50 pages, if not 100. You get a CD with uh, four or five versions. So you get the Spanish version, the Russian version, the English version. And you get Klaus's demo, which is completely different. Um, I, the first time I played it, I was like, oh boy. You also get a vinyl with these songs on it. And here's the kicker, though. You get a certified official piece of the Berlin Wall in this box set, which is like, wow, 
got a piece of history. That's fabulous. Yeah, it is. So if you're listening to this and you haven't picked up this box set, head over to the Scorpions website. Uh, that's the only place I've seen it. Again, I don't know if Amazon and stuff have it. I didn't look, uh, but I got it directly from the website. And quite frankly, uh, you're probably better off buying stuff directly from the website. There's so many third-party sellers and bootleggers of T-shirts. I mean, after Eddie Van Halen died, the amount of Van Halen T-shirts that appeared on Facebook, I was like, oh, come on, really? You're going to profit on some guy's death? I mean, come on. Uh, so support the well, bands, buy uh, directly. There's mentioning a piece of the Berlin War in a box set. Let me quickly close my my thoughts, yep. today's mm. thoughts on this. And then we'll get over to Jim. Yep. Yeah, is is I love the idea of you getting a little chunk of concrete in there because the message of that little piece of concrete is keep your faith because all things pass, including Berlin walls, and eventually common sense usually does prevail. Yeah, it's it's a great anyway, it's a great box set and, and they really um I don't know if I can describe how it the, the box itself looks like the Berlin Wall. It's like it's like a gray box, and it's textured so that when you feel it, it I don't want to say it feels like sandpaper, but it feels as though you were touching actual uh, gyp not gyp rock, um, uh, you know the uh, cinder blocks. Concrete. Yeah, cinder block. Yeah. So it's funny because you get that as soon as you hold it, you get this tactile uh, feeling, and you go, "Whoa, I'm, I'm like actually touching a wall," and it's heavy and brilliantly done. Brilliantly done. I mean, if I'm going to complain, the only thing I would say is maybe give me like more songs because there was only five or six songs in the box. But who cares? It wasn't about that. It was about the 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 the, the piece of the wall and about the book. The the book is gorgeous, heavy book, lots of great glossy pictures. Well done, Scorpions. Anyhow, uh, thirty years, boys. Here is uh, the one and only Jim Valance talking about his experience with the band making an album that uh, has lasted for the ages here is great canadian jim valance we are speaking with uh, writer jim valance uh, he of course was part of the scorpions crazy world uh, album uh, as we say in montreal bonjour jim how are you i'm well thank you good nice good you. pleasure to see you so just before we get into crazy world um Let's talk about the actual real crazy world that, you, that you've been a part of. You, you did Pretty Woman for Broadway, and of course it shut down. What has that done for you in terms of creativity? Do you just sort of go, throw your hands up in the air and go, oh well, or do you say, okay, well now I've got time to work on the next new project? Is it sort of a frustration thing, or is it more like, all right, it's freed up my schedule, whatever? Well, I, I thought um, as the pandemic sort of became a when it became apparent that it was going to not be over soon and we were all isolating, um, I pretty much stayed in my in my apartment for in New York for like four months and didn't even didn't even leave. I, I thought, okay, the upside is what a great opportunity to do some writing, do some reading, um, maybe uh, practice my instruments, maybe learn a new instrument, maybe learn a new language. Um, I have not put the, the time to good use. It just, every day seems to go actually more quickly than previously. Um, I, I'm a little disappointed. I thought I could actually make good use of this time, and I and I haven't. Not, not that I'm idle or not that I'm accomplishing nothing at all, but it's just not, I'm not filling the time, I think, that uh, to the best of my ability. Right. Are, how, how are you finding it? Are you um, able to? Well, you know. I, I, I'm sort of in the same way, but I've been doing a, a whole bunch of interviews and I just walk the dog constantly. Con you know, we go on these five kilometer runs. That's the minimum. Sometimes we do 10, 12 and that's it. And, and, I, and I've caught up on a lot of TV shows I have never watched. So <laughs> yeah, you know, we're doing the best we can. Um, so let's, let's get back to uh, crazy world, the album. I mean, here we are 30 years later, right? 1990, 2020. For you, how do you think the album has matured? Does it still sound fresh? Does it still sound good? Do you look back and go, man, we got it? Or do you look back and go, well, and as most creators do, oh, we should have tweaked this, we should have tweaked that. How do you look at it on its anniversary? Well, I mean, uh, Scorpions had a career arc. They had albums before Crazy World and albums after Crazy World. I, I popped into their lives for that one album, so... So really, that's the the context for me. 
So, well, I mean, when I listen back to it, I, I, I think it's one of their better albums. I think it's well-crafted, well-recorded, well-produced, well-performed. Um, you know, some music recorded in, especially in the 80s and even into the 90s, is, is sounds of the day. You know, it's, it's not timeless. It's of that time. But I, I think this album uh, stands up very well. It doesn't sound, you, you don't listen to it and go, ah, 1990. I mean, there's some... And I don't say this to be disparaging, but, uh, for example, Hall & Oates, you can listen to some of their music and go, ah, sounds like 1986. You know, there's like a some sounds, you know, from, from those days. Yeah. So I, think, I think in this case, I think uh, Keith Olsen, uh, you know, got some sounds and some performances that, that are timeless. So it sounds good to me, even all these years later. I think part of that, other than the great songwriting, is is the fact that they used real instruments in the sense that they stayed with guitars and real, you know, acoustic drums. If you they didn't they didn't go into those fancy keyboards or the Simmons drums or the Lynn drums because those are the ones that really date. You know, yeah. you hear that Lynn drum and you go, ah, nineteen eighty four, gotcha. <laughs> you know, uh, so quickly uh, before we get into it, I, I want to get over this because the the hot topic these days has been this winds of change. Uh, was written by the CIA to help uh, <laughs> subvert the Russian youth. I mean, have what? you? Oh, you. That. Oh, you haven't heard that. Okay, so so there's a there's a series on. Uh, there's a podcast called the Wind of Change podcast, and they they have gone through how the CIA wrote Winds of Change. <laughs> you, you can, I'll send you the link, and and, and it was made to uh, to subvert the uh, the Russian youth and therefore help the Americans win the Cold War. So since you haven't heard about it, we'll 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 quickly go over it. But what do you think about that? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing. I mean, it's just <laughs> preposterous, and and especially in 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 these times where um, truth is at a at a premium. I mean, there's just uh, so much misinformation, uh, conspiracy theories uh, floated as fact. I mean, so I guess it doesn't surprise me, but um, uh, the fact that anybody would buy into that is is just laughable. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and by the way, I'm you know this is this was in the Guardian and this was in the New York Times. I mean, they all ran stories about it. So I will I will send you the link. It's it's a fascinating listen because you just go <laughs> okay. you just sit there and you go, eh, come on. How, how how recent is this? From uh, from this year. Okay, I, I'd be very interested in seeing that. So I'm going to send that over. Okay, so let, let's get over to this. Uh, talking about Russia. The Scorpions go over to Russia, they do the Moscow Peace Festival, and they do this Stairway to Heaven, Highway to Hell, uh, Make a Difference Foundation benefit album. Bruce Fairburn helps them do uh, Can't Explain. And there's a little bit of a backstory there. On the Savage Amusement Tour, Scorpions don't show up to Vancouver, and they sort of say glibly, eh, Vancouver's far, and they don't really have rock fans. I mean, that's not exactly the quote, but it was sort of like, eh. Whatever. I remember that, yeah. Right. And so Bruce says, no, 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 no. You, you got to come over and you got to meet my neighbor, Jim Valance, and you, you got to just sort of see what you can do. Um, is that sort of, you know, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of how the association came about? Bruce just said, hey, come meet my neighbor? Well, kind of. I mean, uh, Bruce and I go back quite a ways. So I met Bruce in 1973. Uh, Bruce was in a Vancouver band called Sunshine with a Y, Sunshine. And um, I got called up to audition. It was a jazz rock fusion band. And I got called up to audition uh, on drums and I, and I got the job. So for most of 1973, I was in this band called Sunshine and got to know Bruce and, and some other people that later either joined or performed on the first Prism album. So Sunshine kind of morphed into Prism in, in some ways. And, and Bruce and I were the two constants. Bruce uh, played trumpet in Sunshine, but uh, produced Prism. And I was the drummer in Prism and also the songwriter. So Bruce and I go back that far. So uh, fast forward a few years, 1979 or so, uh, Bruce is starting to, to work as a producer. I think one of his first projects was... Um, Ian Lloyd, who was a singer for the band Stories, who had the hit Louie Louie. Um, 
and uh, or I think it was called Brother Louie. And uh, Bruce brought me into that project. And then as the 80s unfolded, um, uh, Bruce was uh, brought in to do Loverboy and uh, Bon Jovi and then Aerosmith. And uh, Bruce brought me into the Aerosmith project. Uh, similar story. He literally brought Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry. Because Bruce and I live not, not next door to each other, but about five houses apart. Bruce brought Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry over to my house, um, introduced us, and then Bruce left. He said, see you guys later. You know, uh, see if you can write a song by dinner time, uh, which we did. So that was a, a, another um, sort of great connection that, that Bruce brought to me. And then uh, forward to 1990, a similar kind of thing. Bruce rang me up. Um, Would you like to work with the Scorpions? And I said, yeah, I mean, I love the band. And so he brought, I believe it was Klaus and Herman were in Vancouver. So uh, just back to your point, I mean, Vancouver w was not um, a backwater. Vancouver was a, all through the 80s, it was like, you know, uh, and mostly because of Bruce Fairburn, but bands came there. You know, um, yeah. like, like I mentioned, Bon Jovi. Right. Well, well and of course, and, and Little Mountain Studio. I mean, that, that yeah. was the place. So you had Motley Crue. You had, uh, you know, Lou Graham sang on Brian Adams' Reckless. You had you had all, just all kinds of stuff going on. Loverboy. Right. You know, the drum sound. Right? We talk about yeah. the drum sound. Uh, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. Uh, I think ACDC yeah. must have done some stuff there, too, I think. So, I believe so, Yeah. So Bruce really kind of made Vancouver this this place. So I, I don't quite know how the Scorpions uh, glossed over that or, or, or missed it. But to their credit, you know, they they realized, well, okay, maybe Vancouver's worth a shot. So so uh, Herman and uh, and Klaus came around and Bruce introduced them and we had a chat. I, I can't remember if we did some writing. Yeah, we did we did a bit of writing right right out of the gate. Yeah, I think we worked. I think Tease Me Please Me was the first one we worked on. And Klaus and, and Herman took that back to um, to Hanover. I think that's where they were living at the time, and played it for Rudolph, who who thought, great, this, you know, I mean, no no ego, no competition. It was just like, okay, Jim's in, you know, which was very very generous. And so then the next trip, uh, Klaus, Rudolph, and Herman came back, and and we really got down to work in in my studio. We spent. I don't remember exactly how long, I mean, days, weeks, maybe on and off for a month or more, um, working on most of the songs on the album. So let me let me just take you up on this real quick, because uh, folks will look back and say, well, wait a minute, Bruce wasn't involved with this album. It's Keith Olsen. Uh, just explain a little bit how Bruce was initially involved and why he didn't end up actually producing the album. Well, I mean, it was a little disappointing. Um we were well along. Um, we were writing, um, demoing, you know, arranging, putting songs together. And um, ACDC came calling. Um, arguably, you know, one of the biggest rock bands in, in, in the world and certainly a feather in anyone's cap, if you know, for a producer. So ACDC approached Bruce to produce. And Bruce... Um, Bruce bailed on, on the Scorpions. He, he said, I'm going to do ACDC. So the Scorpions had already shipped their gear to Vancouver. It, it was on the plane or on the boat, however it was getting there. It was too late to cancel. Um, it, we were that far along, ready to go into the studio, and, um, and Bruce pulled the plug. Uh, again, to everyone's credit, uh, a year or two later, uh, next Scorpions album, uh, Bruce jumped back in, uh, no hard feelings, and, and they carried on. But ironically, by that time, for the next album after Crazy World, uh, Klaus called me to do some writing, and he said, we're coming over to Vancouver in October. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm working with, I forget who it was, a Joan Jett, I think. And Klaus said, well, um, uh, cancel it. And I said, I no, <laughs> I, I, that's not my style. So I sadly did not get to work on the next Scorpion album. Yeah, on Face the Heat, which, by the way, I think is one of the underrated uh, albums in their catalog. But uh, it is good; it's very good. Uh, listen, songs like "Woman," "Unholy Alliance." I'm just looking at some of the uh, "Lonely Nights." I think are great, great tracks. Yeah. But uh, so okay, so so Bruce goes and does ACDC, and I have to say, as a fan, I can't bemoan of that. Of that. I mean, if you're saying, 
oh, I'm going to go work with a new rookie band instead of the Scorpions. I go, eh, okay, maybe. But ACDC, I mean, I, I probably would have done the same thing, I, quite, to be, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. To be yeah. honest. You know, there's multi-levels to that in terms of, of you know, career moves versus ethics and so on. But I, I, we don't need to go there. It, it happened and it all got resolved. I mean, everybody was happy in the end. And I think Keith Olsen uh, did a fantastic job on, on Crazy World. So it all worked out fine. Yeah, and let's let's take a quick minute to uh, to remember Keith. He passed away not so long ago. What did he bring to a project? Because... You know, you look back and we think about Mutt Lang and we think about uh, Bruce and we think about these these massive guys, uh, Ron Nevison, et cetera, et cetera. What was it about uh, Keith that he brought to a project? Well, I was there for the sessions. I went down to L.A. for, for a couple of the recordings and actually, as you know, played on a few things. Um, I mean, Keith, first of all, was a lovely guy. He, he made the studio just a, a, a safe place. It was, you know, comfortable the vibe was always great. The energy was always high. Um, he, he's an engineer. He had an engineer um, there, Erwin Musper, um, but Keith was, you know, overseeing. And so, I mean, he just—he's a music guy. He really understands music and arrangements and, and songs. So he—he he, he was sort of the guiding light through all of that. He picked what songs were we're going to go on the album and, and, you know, did some finessing in, in the studio. We had, uh, you know, written, arranged and demoed all the songs in, in my studio. And then Keith just took it to the, to the next level. Now you're credited with seven songs, but was there a lot more? I mean, did, did you write like 20 and they picked the best seven or the seven that fit on the album? Or did you write eight and they picked seven or did you write seven and that, that was it? You, you got lucky. I, I, I think we finished seven. Okay. But, you know, there were starts and stops. There, there. I mean, I've got a reel of tape somewhere in a box in my in my basement with, um, you know, fragments. I call them. You know, a, a verse that never quite got married to a chorus, and a chorus that never quite got married to a verse. So all these little ideas and snippets and fragments, um, uh, building blocks for songs. But we we completed and arranged, uh, ready for recording seven songs to my recollection now and i know folks don't like the term but were you brought in, in in a sense as a song doctor where they came to you with these songs and you tightened them up or did you sit down with nothing on the paper all three of you and create it all together well yeah i really hate the song doctor i moniker. know everybody hates I'm that moniker a, I'm a song writer right but uh, i don't just fix people's songs but um in, in this case um i mean most of the songs, as I recall, were, were already started. I don't, I'm sure there might be one or two that we started absolutely from scratch. Um, but, for example, Tease Me, Please Me, which, as I recall, was the first one we worked on, um, it was a completely different chorus. So it was, the verse was pretty much intact, as we know it today, and then it, then it went off into a completely different chorus. And that was my first comment on hearing that first song was, great verse, but the song doesn't, doesn't launch it doesn't take off it doesn't go anywhere so i um largely rewrote the the chorus and and uh, again i think it was me close and, and herman and um and so that that song i think became stronger as a result um i'm, I'm very chorus title oriented um and so i mean i think that's what i brought to the table and and lyrically too i mean you know, clearly the Scorpions, English is their second language, but they, they speak excellent English and write excellent lyrics. But, you know, I, I did some tidying on the lyric side, too, just, you know, grammatically and, and rhyme-wise and whatever else. But, but again, my recollection is many of the songs were well underway, and I just jumped in and whatever I thought there was a, a, a weak verse or a weak chorus that could use improvement, that's, that was my contribution. Okay, so that was the contribution, and and we we didn't speak about this in this interview, but we've spoken before, where you said that I think if I'm correct, the the magic for a song is you get the title first, right? You you need a good title. Is that, that yeah, right? yeah, not necessarily need it first, but certainly uh, a, a title. My my sort of test for for a good song is um, you play it for someone who's never heard it before. You play them the first verse the first chorus, 
stop and say, okay, what's the title? And if they can't tell you the title, then I don't think you've done your job as a songwriter. Listen, I agree. There are there are sometimes I'll listen to a whole song and the song will be called, you know, uh, Happy Halloween. You go, but, but you didn't mention Halloween once. What 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 what, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. And and uh, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, just to digress briefly. I mean, a couple of examples of that. If you remember the song uh, "Drops of Jupiter" by Train, um, great song. It ended up being a hit, but. Um, the chorus is, tell me, you know, so it should have been called tell me, but somewhere buried in, in one of the verses is just this one phrase, drops of Jupiter, and they titled the song that. So what happened, the song starts to climb up the chart just because it's really good. But I think people are going in the record store and saying, I'd like that song, you know, tell me. And um, it's like, you know, uh, sorry, don't have that one. So anyway, for the second printing of that album on vinyl, the record company put a sticker on the outside that said, contains the hit song, uh, tell me, and then in brackets, drops of Jupiter. So it was like a, you know, fix it later. And another yeah. example was Tragically Hip, mm -hmm. um, Lake Fever. I don't right. know if you know that song. Oh, yeah. Uh, great song, but um, the chorus, you know, nowhere in the chorus does it say Lake Fever. I think that's in, the, in one of the verses. Otherwise, a great song, and I think, I think that song could have been a, a hit on both sides of the border, if they hadn't tried to be clever with with you know the, the title. Just as you mentioned, a, a little too clever to just take a out of context phrase and pop that yeah. on as a title. I, I don't want to sound pedestrian, but I, but you, you sometimes you just can't be clever. You just just give them the song, give it the title. Off you go. You know, you listen to Aerosmith, dude looks like a lady. You go, okay, dude, look, I got it. True. And off you go, you know. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're down in L.A. With, with the band and you're working on it now. Are these songs sort of in a living moment where, where you get in the studio and Keith says, okay, I need more guitar here and I need more drums here and we need reverb or whatever. And then all of a sudden you have to sort of start reworking the choruses and reworking the lyrics. Or did they, once you were done writing you hand it off and that's it. Yeah, there was, to my recollection, there was no rewriting in the studio. We, we, I mean, my mode of working and um, I know Bruce Fairburn too, is do lots of preparation and then go in and make the record. Um, you know, you don't spend weeks and months in the studio, especially back in those days when studios were charging, you know, $2,500 a day and that was a, a bargain price. You know, you didn't just sit around and unless you were Pink Floyd <laughs> had endless uh, budget, you, you didn't just sit around in the studio writing and rewriting. So I, I know that when we went in with Keith, um, the songs were uh, written, arranged and, and ready to go. And, and, and Keith added, you know, some just, you know, little bits and parts here and there and, and obviously um, made it sound great and got great performances out of the band. So that was his his contribution, just the, the, like the director of the film, you know, making all of the final, final cuts and final calls. And, and final calls. Now you are credited as playing keyboard on, I'm looking at it real quick, uh, send me an angel. Uh, yeah. How did that come about? Did they just not have a guy? Did you just have a, a great passage and said, Oh, listen to this. You, you gotta, and they went, Oh yeah, we got to use it. How did you end up on the recording? And, is there more to you on that recording, or is that just sort of that's it? I, a little bit of keyboard on "Send Me an Angel." Um, yeah, well, I'm, I mean, Scorpions don't have a keyboard player, so it, you know. Um, but when we were recording the demo in my home studio, I, I thought it needed um, a, a keyboard pad and some and some maybe arpeggiated parts, um, and so I added those. And Keith Olsen. Uh, really liked it and, and asked me that that's how I ended up going down to LA for the sessions was Keith asked me to come down and, and replicate those parts on the, on the album. Um, so that was on Send Me an Angel and, and, and Wind of Change. I was only accredited for some reason, only credited for playing keyboards on, on one of them, but I, I actually played on, on both those songs. Oh, so, so you were writing with the CIA then? I, I see what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, I think Klaus wrote, uh, 
wins and change on his own, as mm-hmm. I recall. Yep. Um, but actually, I mean, I actually lobbied for a small writing credit because I, I wrote the underscore for the bridge. So the, the, the chord progression, uh, not the melody, not the lyric, but I, I wrote the chord progression for the bridge. And, um, and this is not deserving of a writing credit, but I also arranged the song, recorded the demo, uh, played most of the parts, and then again went down to LA and, and played those on, on the album. But I, I mean, I, I know enough about where the line is drawn that there is there's songwriting and then there's just arranging. And arranging is never a meritus of a of a writing credit. But on on Wind of Change, I yeah, ten percent would have would have been maybe nice and would have been merited, but but uh, Klaus said no. And, and I'm okay with that. I'm I'm over it. Mm-hmm. And you're over, you're over it. Uh, <laughs> let, let me just kind of quickly ask you uh, about this in the in the recording process. They had, of course, worked with Dieter Dirks for well, pretty much forever. I mean, you know, we'll call it forever. But for for at least a decade, they worked with Dieter. They had their method with Dieter. Dieter had their method with them. Was there any sense from you that 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 working with Keith? They were nervous. They were uh, stressed out. They they were excited. Like, oh my god, it's like it's, it's like a new toy in the in the toy box. Like, how did they sort of see that? Because you know they had a lot of success with Dieter, and so there was obviously some pressure that if you're not using Dieter and this one fails, well, it might fall on you. And of course, it does doesn't fail. It becomes a massive success. But was there any sense of, oof, we're moving on. What are we gonna do? I mean, I wasn't privy to all of the conversations along those lines. That would have been a private band matter. Uh, and I'm sure they they had some, you know, trials and tribulations making such a such a big change. But, uh, you know, as, as I recall, just sort of as a fly on the wall, uh, I, th- I think they were excited to try something new. I, I think I think they maybe felt Dieter had done great for them. I mean, he discovered them as kids, if I if I have the history correct. And guided them through the early part of their career, um, was a huge contributor to their their success, and and that carried on for for a number of albums. But I, I think they were ready for a change. I think they wanted to up their game or at least you know try a different path. So no, there was no no hesitation, no reservation about about. Moving. I think they, well, first of all, I think they were excited about working with Bruce uh, because of Bruce's. Um, Clearly, you know, success with, you know, Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and others. I think they were, and this and Bruce's sound, which uh, again is is um, not to take anything away from Bruce, but you know, Bob Rock, who was Bruce's main engineer before Bob went off and became his own, you know, uh, producer and, and you know, worked with um, Metallica and so on. And then Mike Fraser um, was also Bruce's engineer. He was Bob Rock's second engineer, and then when Bob went on to start his own career. Mike Fraser moved up and was Bruce Fairburn's first engineer. So for all those reasons, the Scorpions uh, were very excited about working with, with Bruce. And and then I think when that fell through, um, not that Keith was a distant second choice, I and mean, he, he was clearly a, a, you know, a great choice as well. Um, but no, they, they were they were moving on. They were moving forward, not not wanting to remain in, in static or in one place. So it was all positive. It, it, very positive. It turned out well. I'll, I'll finish on these on these last two. You mentioned that you have some working demos and stuff. What's the process for you to get these demos to the band? Do, do you just sort of sit in your studio and play all the instruments and record it yourself and have sort of a finished working version that they can listen to and play off of? Or do you do the demos with the band or... You know, how, how do you, you know, you come up with whatever, I'm looking at the Kicks After Six or Tease Me, Please Me, or do you do your own version and say, here, guys, this is how I see it? How does that work? I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's never the same. If you're talking specifically Scorpions, yeah, you know, that would be one answer. I mean, I mean, over the course of my career, I've written hundreds of songs with maybe a hundred artists, you know, and it's always a little bit different. In some cases, I, I will sketch out the, the whole thing. And I, I play all the instruments. I play guitar, bass, drums, keyboards. None of them virtuosically, but I, I you know, I'm a competent um, sort of rhythm player on all those instruments. So I, I can cobble a track together 
uh, pretty good. Can't play lead guitar to save my life, but but I'm a solid rhythm player, uh, as is uh, Rudolph. So Rudolph and I kind of bonded on that because stylistically he and I both have a, a very solid, chunky uh, rhythm guitar style. So uh, he and I were a, were a, a good fit. Um, I think, with, again, with Tease Me, Please Me, I think I re-demoed that. Um, I, well, probably not playing drums, but it had just been a programmed programmed drums. Not a loop, but I, I, you know, I just literally play the drum kit on, on keyboards. Um, and I would have played uh, bass and, and guitar on that. That would have been maybe the first pass when it was me and Klaus and, and Herman. And then when Rudolph came over to Vancouver, obviously I, I deferred to him on, on the rhythm guitar parts. Um, I recall playing bass and, and, and then, you know, some keyboards were, were appropriate. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm often my working process involves laying down a track, you know, a very definitive arranged demo with sounds and parts and all of that. You know, so, someday there's going to have to be a Jim Valance box set with all the working tracks of all the different bands from, you know, What About Love to the Brian Adams to the uh, all that stuff. I'd, I'd, I'd buy two of them. Uh, just real quick on Brian Adams. He obviously went off and worked with Mutt Lang. Were you ever involved with Mutt Lang in, in a professional capacity where you wrote something for him or you, or you worked for him? Uh, Mutt and I uh, collaborated early. So it, the, the again, the arc of mine and Brian's career was we, we met in January 1978, worked uh, – almost daily. I mean, we worked very, very hard and very closely uh, for 10 years. Um, Mutt, uh, sorry about my phone, uh, Mutt um, became involved uh, after Reckless. We tried to get Mutt on the Into the Fire album, which followed Reckless. Mutt was busy with Def Leppard. So um, the album after that, which was Waking Up the Neighbors, uh, there was a period of time where me and Mutt and Brian were collaborating uh, three ways. And then um, it's, a, it's a long story and barely deserves repeating. But but Brian and I had a we'd already started to sort of crumble uh, our relationship creatively and personally after Reckless. So the whole Into the Fire album was was a, was difficult. We, we weren't really getting along. Um, and by the end of that album. I think we were both just burned out. I mean, we'd spent almost every day together for 10 years. So, you know, it, you, it's, that's going to take a toll on any relationship. So it was actually a blessing. Mutt came in and, and brought some new energy to and, and, a, and, a, and a positive vibe. But it was a little bit too late because Brian and I had already pretty much burned out. And then my son was born right around that same time. And, and that kind of, you know, um, I, I kind of woke up and went, whoa. Life is short. You know, I'm not having fun right now. I think I need to move on. So I left Brian and Mutt to finish the album. Uh, I took a bit of a break, moved on to Aerosmith. And then, uh, you know, Brian and I were kind of estranged for, um, I forget, five or ten years. And then we both kind of went, you know what, let's let's just patch this up. We're, you know, like, again, life is short. Um, you're my brother. Let's... Uh, Let's get back on track here, and 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 we did, and, and to this day we're we're still working. And yeah. then, and you did uh, the Pretty Woman together, the 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 Broadway play. So we did, and that was another very intense period, uh, yes. more intense than anything in my career. That was three years of almost every every day uh, writing forty songs to get twenty, because the director was very particular and and, and very demanding. Um, that was the time I, I would not do another musical. It's, it's, uh, yes, yeah. I was going to ask you because you told me that once before, and, and, the, and you also told me about that, that you had the song and the producer accepts the song, and then they go run it on stage and they do a dress rehearsal, and then they go, Yeah, it's not working on the stage, and you have to go rewrite it. And you're like, But we just yeah. got, we just got it. Sometimes the song will stay in for, for six months, and, and then the director goes, You know, I'm not sure it's working, or sometimes it's six days. But uh, yeah, very arduous, very taxing uh, process. Um, I'm glad I did it because it was a challenge. And I think, um, you know, I'm, how old am I, 68, 69, I forget. But, 
but I think you need to keep pushing yourself and, and, and challenging yourself. And that was the reason I, I did that. And, and uh, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll finish on the Mutt thing. I've always just found that Mutt is, is fantastic. You listen to anything that he's done, whether it's the Nickelback or the Shania Twain or Brian Adams or whoever, but Def Leppard, obviously. And there, there's a sound. Not a lot of for me, not a lot of producers create necessarily their own sound with their own technique. A lot of them, you know, they're they're very competent and they do great work. But a Mutt album is stamped Mutt Lang. He is so brilliant. He's just uh, focused. Um, he's a lovely guy, but just a genius, a studio genius. He just make and, and he's meticulous. Um, he'll do a part over and over and over and over. Um, you know, people say there's nothing's perfect, but I, I think Mutt pursues perfection like right to the last sort of atom. You know, he doesn't stop until it's to his standards, and his standards are very, very high. But I love Mutt. He's just a sweet, sweet man and just re- remarkable talent. Oh, I absolutely agree. But we've all heard the stories of, you know, the drummer will be in there for 11 hours and they'll go, great, we have that one cymbal sound. And you're like, what? One cymbal? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. it's, a, it's, it's one way of working. But then, you know, Mutt is also, you know, go all the way back to Highway to Hell. You know, he yeah. you know, got those amazing performances out of ACDC. And when I asked him about it, like, how did you make those records? He said, I didn't do anything. I set up the record, I set up the microphones, and they and they played. It's like, well, I don't, I'm not sure that's really true, but, but um, you know, I mean, those are great records, too. And, oh, yeah. And, and a band performing off the floor. I mean, just, you know, whereas later on, I think Mutt got more, as the, as the technology got more... Uh, finicky, you know, digital and, and, and so on. I think it opened up avenues for Mutt where he could really indulge his uh, sort of OCD focus. And, and that's why maybe previously he would have had a band play, you know, four takes off the floor. I'm so sorry about that. Um, no and, and then subsequently it was like, okay, let's do the symbol 200 times until it's right. So, but, you know, I've never cared how records were made, whether it was people say, oh, the monkeys and the animals didn't play on their own records in Herman's Hermits. I don't care. I don't care who played on them. I don't care how they did it. They're, they're great records. And whether you're, you know, Mutt Lang or who does uh, 200 takes or Steve Lillywhite who does one take, you know, it, it's the end result that, that uh, you know, that, that we end up with and, and, and love. Uh, I absolutely agree. And for me, there's a lot of bands. I think Bon Jovi would have been a great fit with Mutt because they like that slick stuff. I think the Scorpions, especially back in the 90s or early late 80s, would have been a great fit with Mutt. There's so many bands I would just love to see have them muttified, if I can say that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe someday, you know, Mutt's still out there that maybe the Scorpions can head over to Switzerland and set up shop. Who knows? Uh, on he, that. In one song, you know, just like yeah. he did with. Nickelback or you know just one song would even be great Muse work with Muse yeah yeah, that would be a great fit Mutt and Scorpions yeah, Mutt Scorpions would be great, and, and and Mutt Bon Jovi would be great because they they have that commercial sound. Uh, anyway, uh, let's just quick finish on this. Then uh, thirty years of of uh, um, crazy world. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say there. Thirty years of crazy world. Uh, final words on on the album. It was fun. I, I really enjoyed. The guys, I mean, you know, you, the, the memories are, um, you know, uh, just not just writing and recording and, and the work in the studio, but the times we spent outside the studio, uh, you know, dinners in Vancouver, um, hanging out with the guys, having a lot. They're funny guys. They're, they're really entertaining and, and, and just great folks to hang out with. And, and Herman and I, you know, bonded, I think, more than the others because we're, we're both drummers. Uh, at the heart of it. In fact, um, we would go out for dinner, and this is back in the 90s when restaurants, it was fashionable to serve, um, charge way too much and serve very, very small portions, if you remember that that phase of sort of restaurant uh, kind of style. So Herman and I would go out for dinner, and, and Herman's a big guy, not not overweight, but he's, he's a big man, and it was never enough food. He would always order a second main course, um, and, and I would often do the same. So um, 
in German, uh, Herman and I dubbed ourselves uh, two hungry drummers, which in German, I, if I remember, is zwei hungrig trommler or something like that. So that was our sort of a private joke. And then I went um, and visited Herman um, at his place in France. So the other guys lived in Hanover and, and Herman lived in the south of France. Beautiful house looking over the Mediterranean from sort of halfway up a mountain. I mean, just beautiful. And and the the one thing I remember is you, if you look that way, you saw Nice. And if you look that way, you saw Italy. So around six o'clock, Herman says, well, what do you want to do for dinner? Uh, French or Italian food? He said, if you want French food, we'll drive to Nice. You want Italian food, we'll drive to Italy. <laughs> Literally, it would, would have been 15-minute drive in either direction. So uh, life, life was good in Herman's hood. <laughs> wow. My, uh, my uncle, until he passed away, lived in Nice, actually. And uh, my grandmother, until she passed away, lived in Antibes, right in that area. So oh, yeah, we, we spent our summers in the south of France every year and... and you know, as they say, right? God's country, right? It's beautiful. It's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, as a, as always, a toujours un plaisir, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for for taking your time to to go over Crazy World, such a iconic album. I think that's the the proper term for it. It's an iconic album. People really know good. it, and yeah. certainly it's an iconic song. I mean, when you say "Winds of Change," they go right. Scorpions, Berlin Wall, nineteen. You know, it it's a historic song. Yeah, send me that link. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm gonna send you the uh, the Guardian yeah. uh, the Guardian link. Uh, yeah, but it, and and uh, that I, I'm surprised you didn't see the story. But it, it ran in the the New York Times. It ran in Rolling Stone. It ran in Billboard. Every major like you know, it's not like the conspiracy nut websites that ran it. It's it's the yeah. legitimate news that ran it. And you have to go listen to the podcast that that the guy put together with it, um, Mr. Keith, I think his name is. It's eight parts. And by the end of the eight parts, you sort of go, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's, you know, it's very it's compelling and convincing. You know, these things are out there and, and just the slimmest evidence and, and they just, you know, can run for miles with it. I mean, I've got some ongoing online disputes with people, uh, theory conspirators who, who claim um, that Ringo didn't play on anything. Uh, you know, Bernard Purdy played on all the Beatles tracks, and I mean, it's just and and Bernard Purdy himself uh, has stoked those uh, those conspiracy theories, which I, I think is rather shameful, considering what a great drummer he is, and you know, sterling reputation. He doesn't need to uh, to buy into that. But uh, yeah, there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Yeah, and 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 the whole. Someday I'll need to explore on an episode all the ghost musicians because, you know, Kiss in the 80s, you didn't, you know, and, you know, it happens, of course, Millie Vanilli and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, like you said, a good record is a good record and a good song is a good song. And how it got to be, eh, who cares? Well, include me in that chat because I've, I've got lots of uh, thoughts on it. And, and uh, that's been one of my sort of hobbies, too, is like who played on what. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Love it. I love that stuff. Uh, merci, monsieur. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mitch. Good to see you always. Uh, absolutely. Let me just stop the recording. There we go.